Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Before he was a famous comedian, Fred Armisen was a punk rocker. And now, on Saturday Night Live in Portlandia, he combines these two sensibilities. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We talk to comedian and musician Fred Armisen about Portland, Gaddafi, and avant-garde drumming. And we review the latest from The Boss. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Put its rings and I rise, wipe the sleep out of my eyes. My shaven razor's cold and it stings. Cheer up, sleepy Jean, oh, what can it mean to That is the Monkees' number one hit from 1967, Daydream Believer, with Davy Jones on lead vocals. One of the few tracks that Jones actually had the lead vocals on in the Monkees' history. Jones died February 29th at the age of 66 in Florida of a heart attack. The only British-born member of the original Monkees' quartet, a child actor who appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show as part of the Broadway cast of Oliver the same night that the Beatles did. So interesting how the Monkees' early career, pre-career, paralleled that of the Beatles, a group to whom they were much compared in terms of sort of the way they used the television medium to explore and expand their career. In a lot of ways, Jim, I think we're talking about the first postmodern pop rock band here, yeah. using their television show as a vehicle for their career. And Jones did bring a vital element to the group in that he may not have been much of a singer. He certainly didn't play many instruments. Well, he shook a mean tambourine. <laughs> that is true. But he had the charisma and the acting chops that were a vital ingredient of this band's success during that era. And I think, you know, perhaps underrated as a musical entity as well. Oh, absolutely. I think so. We did a show last year, uh, last February, on Sound Opinions about the Monkees and made the argument that they may have been cast for TV. They may have been plastic and ersatz, 
the birds wrote So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star laughing at the monkeys. But the music endures. There were some great songwriters. Daydream Believer, written by John Stewart, the songwriter for the Kingston Trio. Right. The song we're about to play by Boyce and Hart, the talented team that wrote many of their best tunes. The song Stand Up and the Monkeys did become a real band over the course of their development. And there's a lot to be said for them. I think they always make me smile whenever I hear them. The best way, perhaps, to remember Davy Jones, Dead at 66, is with this song. It was the Monkeys' last top ten hit, made it all the way to number three in 1968. It's the song Valerie with Davy Jones front and center on Sound Opinions. There's a girl I know who makes me feel so good And I wouldn't live without her even if I could They call her That's Valerie from the Monkees in tribute to the lead vocalist on that track, Davy Jones, dead at the age of 66. Listening to Sound Opinions and Jim, we're playing a little bit of the 1994 release by the hardcore post-punk band Trenchmouth, called Trenchmouth versus the Light of the Sun. The Chicago band was part of that art punk scene in Chicago in the early 90s, melding punk, post-punk, jazz, avant-garde. But what's perhaps most noteworthy is that the drummer you're hearing is none other than comedian Fred Armisen. He's best known today as the man doing President Obama and Prince impressions on Saturday Night Live or spoofing hippie or hipster culture on Portlandia. But before he was making us laugh, he was trying to make it as a rock musician. Fred joins us now on the heels of Portlandia, wrapping up a successful second season on IFC. Now, his partner on the show, Carrie Brownstein, you know her as a member of Sleater Kinney and also now Wild Flag. Both are bringing a rock sensibility to their writing and performing whether it's through their satires of the Portland indie scene or their DIY attitude. Fred and Carrie recently went back on the road, this time trading their instruments for jokes as part of Portlandia, the tour. And when he returned to his former stomping grounds of Chicago, we talked to Fred about the connections between these two worlds and the many opportunities for humor at the Music Industry Conference South by Southwest. I wanted to start with you about that intersection of the comic underground and the musical underground because mm-hmm. you were a drummer, right? Yeah. Trenchmouth. Yeah. What was it like making the transition from one to the other and how closely aligned were they? How easy was that or how hard? It it all happened uh it was sort of happened to me. Even though I had some ambition to want to be on TV, it just all unfolded. It all just happened. 
I had to go down to South by Southwest to play with Sally and also John Langford. He had his solo stuff. They needed a drummer. Absolutely, I'd love to go. Sally Timms and John Sally Langford Timms, of the yeah. Mekons. Yeah, Sally, who I was married to. And then um, we got the book in, in the mail of what South by Southwest is, and it was all these like talks that they were having, like these sort of lectures, how to get your song played on the radio, how to make a video, how to, you know, and I, and I think I might have been frustrated with how Trenchmouth was going, hmm. but I thought there's no formula to how to make it, you know, and I don't know how I got it in my head, but I thought like, let's make a video. Let's go and, and bring a video camera and I'll interrupt some of these panels and I'll interview bands and I would interview bands as different characters, like a German journalist, uh, a mentally disabled person, a blind person, a deaf person. And I didn't know what I was going to do with this tape. I had no idea. It was just yeah. like, let's just do it. I think right from there, as soon as they edited it, I had something that I was sending some, giving to my friends and then we showed it at Lounge Axe. Mm-hmm. And a club in Chicago. A yeah. club in Chicago. And Trenchmouth had been playing and playing and playing and making flyers and trying to get press. And But as soon as, as this tape was shown at Lounge Axe, there was a thing in the reader. And there was like a, people wrote about it and people came to the show. This is pre-YouTube. Pre-YouTube. Yeah. This is Pony Express Day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, that's kind of like where... Immediately, the message was sent to me, like, just do, you should be doing this. Hello there. I'm Fred. I'm in Austin, Texas right now for something called the South by Southwest Music Convention. It's an annual convention in which national touring bands, booking agents, managers, and record label executives meet. This seminar was called The Art of the Interview. It's this talk about how to give an interview and get the most out of your artist. I'm actually not sure exactly what she was talking about, but she seemed very focused about it. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, um, from the other side of that, if you're interviewing someone and you want to get someone to loosen up a little bit, do you think it's proper or right to uh, threaten them physically, say with a switchblade or a pistol or something? You said about the frustration part of it, you know, being in a punk rock band, struggling to make an existence. And then the idea of, on top of it, the anger combined with the comedic sensibility combined with the idea, oh, let's videotape it. Yeah. I remember more people were talking about you interrupting those boring panels than the actual panels during the conference. You were kind of like the talk. You sort of took over the South by Southwest Music Conference that one year. I'll never through forget this guerrilla action. Asking <laughs> the head of Capitol Records to kiss the chief music writer at oh, Rolling Stone. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I just feel like since this is called Face to Face with Gary Gersh, it might be really nice if you guys actually maybe kissed each other or made out with each other for us. <laughs> Why? I mean, what, 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 you got a camera running, man. Why, uh, why would you say that? Uh, just I'm not going to kiss Dave, but I like him very much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks anyway. I was just trying. I think, ironically, that tape, being at South by Southwest, is what got me to be where I am today. So even though I made a joke about going to this festival to try to make it in the biz. I, I can't believe I, even using the word make it you is weird. went to the festival and made it in the biz. <laughs> but the yeah. festival was my gateway to the rest of what I'm doing today. Yeah. And obviously the, the big break, the Saturday Night Live gig that occurred soon after that, a few years after that, re- remarkably fast chain of events. Oh, it happened. It was such a blur. That's another really nice thing that like, like from there I got a, a, a gig doing some, I can't I saying gig, I hate saying it, but, that, <laughs> but, there's, but that's all, that's what it is. Doing stuff for HBO and from HBO I got to work with Bob Odenkirk on this pilot and from that tape I got to audition for Saturday Night Live and it was just this 
and here I am. Were you ever nervous or somehow cowed by the idea that now I'm auditioning for Lauren Michaels of Saturday Night Live, the most uh, popular nationally televised comedy show? What happens is it's so freaky that you become not nervous because playing to empty rooms is, it was so recent to me that to be in at, you know, at 8H and NBC was just like, this is insane. This is, it's so crazy. It's so fantastical that you're just enjoying that moment. And I actually was felt like, oh, I'm so lucky to be at NBC right now. I, they f- flew me out here out for, you know, like I get to be in New York. I get to be in the studio and I was starstruck by the studio. You almost, you think, look, whatever happens, happens. I can't believe I got this far. My first guest is the lead singer for a group called U2. Please welcome Bono! So, Bono, you can sing into here and you could do this song, uh, Vertigo. I don't have a band. That's okay, I'll play the drums. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Uno, dos, tres, catarse. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> let's think about this for one moment. Uh, the beginning of this song, you are speaking in Spanish, right? Yeah, man. You're counting and you say, uno, dos, tres, which means? One, two, three. Right. And then you say 14, which means? 14. I know it doesn't make sense, but music is about the expression and the rhythm of words. It's about attitude. Senor Bono, the Spanish language is a very serious thing. To use it so carelessly is an insult to me and to the entire Latin community. Oh, I'm deeply sorry it was never uh, my intention to offend anyone. Bono. I'm just kidding! <laughs> I'm going to make the contention that a major thrust in the comedy you've done, Saturday Night Live, Portlandia, which we'll get to, music has always played a role in it. Obviously, you got noticed uh, on SNL for doing your Tito Puente, your Prince, right? There's always been music running through, and and that's rare. There's not too many other comics, uh, no matter how talented, that that draw on that world. Well, it's just, you know, that's what I know, and... Some people are really good at telling stories about their families and where they come from. Some people are good at jokes. I don't think I'm even particularly good at telling jokes. One way to look at it is it's a crutch, and the other way is just it's a tool. It's something I, I, that I can use to kind of convey something. And also, like, bands and genres, they, they are a character also. Mm. So in the way that someone can come up with a character, there, I think there's a lot in a type of music that says a lot. For example, like hardcore punk, like how it's aged and what it what it means you know and at the time in 1981 or whatever it was so angry it was like the hardest thing you could ever hear and now you it's it's something different now you also released a single last year crisis of conformity based on a sketch you did on saturday night live uh band reunion at the wedding yeah it's these aging hardcore musicians who reunite to perform at a wedding how did that come about well the concept of that one is i play a guy who's older sort of white-haired, whose daughter is getting married. Mm. We say, hey, we're going to get the guys together, the band back together. Um, And it turns out to be one of those hardcore songs that was so angry. (laughs) All right, let's do this. Uh, Madeline, my little Maddie, I'm I'm so proud of you. And I hope Daddy doesn't make too much of a fool of himself up here. All right, it's with all my love. You guys ready? Here we go. Bring the 
First of all, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of like a, a love letter to my youth. It's a love letter to when I was a teenager. It's to all the bands that I loved, you know, to Who's Could Do and Black mm-hmm. Flag and, and the Minutemen. But also, I saw that movie American Hardcore. Mm-hmm. Remember that? It's about the hardcore punk scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the math works out. The guys are actually old enough to have daughters who are getting married. Yeah. Which yeah. freaks me out. I was like, oh, they're old. <laughs> <laughs> but you took it a step further. You went to Drag City, this independent label in Chicago, and you yeah. actually put out a single yeah. by this band. Yeah. It deserved it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> a band like that should have a single out. A lot of these things, like, I just want it to seem real. My hope is always that someone will be confused. Your drum video is also along those lines. That's that's the same kind. Like, this mock like, instructional yeah. video you released a few years ago where you're this virtuosic drummer sharing your wisdom on the mastering of the instrument. So what I'm doing, first of all, with my right hand, I'm doing a lot of what I call a paradiddle-addle-doodle, and that basically goes left, left, right, left, left, right, left, left, right, 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 left, left, right, left, left, right, left, 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 right, 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 left. Okay, so you might want to memorize that for your practicing at home. Yeah, Jens Hahnemann, also through Drag City. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, my wish was that it would be in music stores. And so I wanted people to come back and go, these are lies. These are lies. This is not how you play the drums. This guy doesn't know a triple flamacue. No, it's fiction. It's all fiction. And you're coming out of a scene notable for its lack of humor. I mean, punk and punk rock and hardcore punk. I mean, very serious young men, usually. And I was right there with them. Yeah. Were you, at a certain point, did you sort of recognize this is sort of absurd how insular and and serious we all are about this particular endeavor? You know, I think that it's not, I I think that's what being a teenager is all about. Mm -hmm. Like, you sort of take on this, this anger. It's almost like fake anger. And that's just, that's the voice of what that is. That's just like late teens, that's all just that's all that is is energy mm-hmm. you know angry energy but at the same time there are there were punk bands who absolutely did have a very good sense of humor i think the minutemen did the meat puppets did mm-hmm. the damned i really like that about punk We'll continue talking underground music and comedy with Fred Armisen after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later on in the show, we've got album reviews of the latest from Bruce Springsteen and Mark Lanigan, as well as my Desert Island Jukebox pick. Books. The church is in ruins. The priests hang on hooks. The radio's on ice. 
You know, people were talking about getting piercings and getting tribal tattoos. Yeah. And people were singing about saving the planet and forming bands. Yeah. There's a place where that idea still exists as a reality, and I've been there. Where is it? Portland. Oregon? Yeah. Dream of the night. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that was a song called Dream of the 90s from the first season of Portlandia. It was performed by the series' co-creator, our guest this week, Fred Armisen. As we were discussing, Fred went from being a struggling punk musician, the drummer for the 90s band Trenchmouth, among other projects, to becoming one of the most recognizable faces and voices on Saturday Night Live, where he's been a cast member for eight years. In 2011, he launched Portlandia with his friend and fellow music veteran, Carrie Brownstein. Jim, in the scene we just played, Fred's singing to Carrie about how the 90s are alive and well in Portland. Now, that's an attitude and aesthetic that I'd trace back to the music of that era, and one that permeates all of the sketches on the show. We've got scenes about Harajuku fans, DJ nights, hipster hotels, not to mention appearances by Amy Mann, Sarah McLaughlin, Joanna Newsom, Eddie Vedder. So whether overtly about music or not, Portlandia really seems to speak to music fans. Let's continue here with Fred Armisen. It's interesting how Portlandia seems to be a commentary on a lot of that scene that, that you grew up with in the 90s. You know, and Portland is, is sort of this mythical, it, it's a real place, but at the same time it's kind of this mythical indie rock playground that seems to be very rooted in the cultural values of, of 90s independent music. Yeah. Uh, I mean, was that kind of the basic premise when you started creating the show? Yeah, but I mean, it was, you know, it's like a dreamy version of Portland, but mm-hmm. we didn't think that far ahead. But the only experiences I could go from are my experiences here in Chicago when I li- lived in Wicker Park or wherever as I moved around. Um, that's the scene that I knew. That, you know, people who had recording studios like Steve Albini and Bettina from Thrill Jockey, like that world, that's all I need, knew. And Carrie Brownstein is coming from a very similar kind of background, I would Absolutely, imagine. yeah. I mean, was that or, something or, you guys bonded over? Or? Oh, <laughs> yeah. we, we bonded so much about it. I mean, I think Slater Kinney had so much more success with it. I mean, she really toured. They toured Europe uh, who knows how many times, but it, it, it's almost like a, a shorthand. We, don't, we didn't, even, didn't even need to discuss it. When you have something in common with someone, you, you barely talk about it because you're just... You're on the same page. I don't know if you guys are aware, um, but there is uh, music here in this library available to our kids uh, that is something that leaves a lot to be desired. 
it, it is just outrageous. Let's be honest. We're not talking about our taste in music. We're talking about what our kids love, what our kids are into. Let's well, talk about kraut rock. Let's talk about work. Noi. Why aren't we talking about noi? What is kraut rock? And you don't know noi? I am sorry. I, you don't know noi. I am getting very stressed out that the head of our school does not know about noi. These are the people teaching our kids. Our kids are sponges. And when they leave here, what they listen to now will affect them the rest of their lives. Slate Magazine, I want to run this by you, Fred, was reviewing the show very favorably. And they call Portlandia a horror show about happiness. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of saying, you know, it's this, it's this group of people that grew up at a particular time, kind of into music, into, into culture, into the arts. You know, a little bit of privilege in terms of just a little more elevated cultural yeah, they antenna can, out there. They can afford things. Yes. And in some ways, satirizing that, but also celebrating that it seems like mostly celebrating because yeah. that's what we're the same way when we do the characters you know we're not very different than what we're really like we, we don't speak that differently we don't take on all kinds of uh, affectations so it's pre- it's a celebration of it do you have to have some love for whoever you're lampooning or satirizing in order to play them absolutely I mean, yeah. absolutely i think when you do an impression of someone or you do a character it, when when you if you dislike them you shouldn't do it right you shouldn't do it not as a moral stance, but because I think the audience can sense that there's something negative going on. Hmm. You just would rather not do it. So when Tina Fey would do Sarah Palin, there's part of her that kind of is drawn to this woman. I bet I, I can't speak for her, but I think that, that that's usually the case with people. Yeah. But um, Tina has such a great outlook on life and on people, and she understands the the reality of what they are, and and so much so that none of us attach ourselves to the politics of who people, you know, like yeah. what's their political stance. Like, you know that it's just like, for lack of a better word, these are their jobs. Okay, um, but all right, but Tito Puente, even Sarah Palin are one thing. Y- you did Gaddafi. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'll tell you something. This is tricky, but it's a, you know, it's a cartoony version of Gaddafi, but I am not connected to what dictators have done in their lives. And that's probably a flaw. You know, but <laughs> but when I see Saddam Hussein, I think, oh, he looks like a rock star to me. Hmm. There's something very like vulnerable about dictators. They're so flawed. They need so much reassurance that they have medals and stuff. And there's something about dictators that I just feel like I can't even. And this is horrible, but I can't really hate them. You know, I keep like, I hate hmm. that guy. I'm just like, I mean, it's you know, it's heinous what they've done, definitely. But I'm not connected to it. I just see this Gaddafi with his crazy outfits, yeah. and I just see the clowny part of him. So when I'm doing Gaddafi, it's that aspect of him, the sort of exterior. Thank you. Thank you very much. What's up? <laughs> we are two weeks into the no-fly zone, or as I call it, the bummer zone. But guess what? I'm still here. I'm like a landmark building. To quote my good friend and personal stylist, MC Hammer, na, 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 na. No, no, can't touch this. Okay. <laughs> so how will this end, Momar? Look, Seth, I know this can't last forever. It's been a good run. And if there does come a time when I do have to step down, all I ask from America is that you give me my own CSI. Check it out. Looks like this camel just busted his hump. <laughs> Not bad, right? Momar, get out of here. 
So there's a little bit of Prince in Gaddafi yeah. and a little bit of Gaddafi in Prince. Well, I'm thinking about they're in totally. front of these audiences. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, you watch the way an audience reacts to a dictator. Yeah. Isn't all that dissimilar to the way an audience reacts to Van Halen? You know, I mean, it's like the Absolutely. same kind of power in some way. And especially yeah. with style. They pay yeah. so much attention. None of these guys, mm. they all have this weird, like, I'm going to be this guy. And yeah. you, you notice that they never really change. Like, Ahmadinejad is another one. Mm. And they dye their hair. Dye their hair. <laughs> special kind of suit that they wear all the time. It's a smile that they do all the time. The uh, number of musicians who've uh, done cameos on Portlandia. Eddie Vedder. Carrie falls in love with what's yeah. going to be her perfect guy. You as her friend who really has the hots for her but won't come out and yeah. say, you know, or is encouraging. The guy's perfect. He just has one problem. He has an Eddie Vedder tattoo yeah, yeah. who begins talking to her. Yeah. And then Vedder does a cameo. The tattoo version of you is a little off. Like, but you're smart and you're funny. And I just, I already feel really, really close to you. Wait, what is that? Oh, yeah, it's a tattoo. Tell me it's not a bad one. Uh, no, that's bad. Like your mom's name or like a... Ani DeFranco playing guitar with a nose ring. I mean, what do you just call up Vetter and say, hey, what, yeah. do you, what do you think? You want to come by? Yeah, it's, it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, it's one thing for you to have gone from music to comedy. What about when the musicians come? Vetter, Vetter's a serious guy. He doesn't do much comedy. I think they trust that we're not going to do anything that's going to make them look foolish. Mm. And we, we tell them the premise. You know, they're open to say no. And... There aren't that many lines really that they're gonna they have to memorize anything crazy. It's like it's like um they play they get to play a character, but it's not any any huge insane stretch. So we also make their workday easy. They come down to Portland. Mm-hmm. We shoot pretty quickly. But from what I've read about Portlandia, a lot of it is uh being spontaneously written yeah. by the, the comic. You know, yeah. you and Carrie and everybody on the scene. Are they able to roll? Is a musician able to roll with it the same way? Totally. Totally. Hmm. Interesting. Who's on your and Carrie's wish list? Who would you love to get to drop by? <laughs> Mick Jones from The Clash and Big Audio Dynamite. Paul Weller would be great. Hugh Cornwell from The Stranglers. I wish, and Captain Sensible from The Damned, in my dreams, it would be the four of them together. Wow. Mm. As, <laughs> That's but, a super group. Yeah, super group, and not playing the guys from that band. Maybe just like sort of tourist group from England or, mm-hmm. or maybe mm. bankers or something. The older I get, I, I they mean more and more to me. Uh, and then Carrie, I don't know who Carrie would pick, but we have similar sort of like pe- just people like that. Yeah, it's interesting that these rock stars who we don't normally perceive as being particularly humorful are playing along. And I think one of the things you've said in the past, Fred, has sort of been a, a linchpin for you in terms of what you're doing in terms of comedy is is the awkward moment. You know, creating these awkward situations. That, yeah. You know, how did that sort of arrive, that sort of sensibility? That, that's, a, that's accidental. Like, mm-hmm. we, I wish I could say, like, yeah, we had this grand design to make things awkward. and But I, it's just part of its laziness, kind of like, look, we got to shoot this thing this afternoon. I don't know how it ends. <laughs> We're staring at each other, and then yeah. we have this other thing to shoot tonight. So let's just we'll, – the editors will figure something out for it. Right. And the writers we've had on the show, we have, we have maybe four or five. That, that's just what we come up with. Like, this, It's more of a feeling of when we're done, we like it. Like, I like this. This is fine with me that this is how it ends. If it doesn't happen naturally, it'll be too sweaty if we work too hard at it. And same thing goes with the SNL stuff. Sometimes I, I, there's no joke to some of this stuff. Right. In a way, even the crisis of conformity, even the heart doesn't have a real joke. Yeah. It's like – it's a way to look at something, but I, I just have never been able to, to do that. 
On the other hand, here's this fawning New Yorker profile and, and a yeah. glowing piece in the New York Times, you know, writing about you and Carrie as a new partnership that's almost like Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley. <laughs> I was like, are you recognizing, you know, like, uh, what the, who the heck are they talking about? We're, we feel, I know it sounds really show busy, but we feel lucky every minute. You know, I'll tell you why we feel that way is because we come from bands and, you know, it's hard work and it's freezing cold and it's really, you know, and hot in some places. And it's just like, it's it's really hard. So, and also I know the people I know also who are in television, it's hard for everybody to get any attention and have stuff written. So uh, to have any, anything written is like a dream. It's, it's all, it's all, we were just happy enough that we had a pilot made for IFC. <laughs> we really were. Well, and the whole idea of making something out of this, fashioning a living out of what you're doing. I mean, you obviously had these experiences many times when you were in the punk rock bands, and I'm sure Carrie did when she was starting out, too. You're playing in front of half-empty rooms or less. Oh, to total, to z- we've played total to zero people. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've played gigs where there was like, you know, 10 people there, and then within a song there was zero. <laughs> And then we've we've had shows where we started off with one person and that one person just stayed all the way through. I mean, some we've had great times, by the way. There are some great shows, but those ones do stick out in my mind. One time we played in Las Vegas and we opened up for a band called Down By Law. Mm-hmm. And we pulled up in the van and for some reason, the people who turned out for the show were all Nazi skinheads. Mm-hmm. And we have an African-American singer. It was so it did not, we did maybe three songs. And Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Yeah. Good night. I didn't cry, but I had that thing where I wanted to cry. And mm. I was just like, this is not living. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got to talk about Portland. The city seems to be very supportive of the arts community in general. The mayor there seems to have really set the tone in terms of, you know, the interaction between the arts world and, and, and city government. They've been nothing but supportive and nice. And our crew is whatever, 90% Portland people, 95% Portland people. And when we go, you know, we shoot on location. So we're very much uh, uh, ingrained in the city. And also it's all, the whole show is very positive about Portland. So I think they understand that, that it's done with like affection. And then that, that mayor is like the coolest mayor ever. Portland, you're so beautiful. City, my Portland. We've been talking to Fred Armisen of Saturday Night Live and Portlandia. Fred, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, her mountains so wide, so tall. You are listening to Sound Opinions. You put on your coat, I'll put on my hat. You put out the dog, I'll put out the cat. You put on your red dress for me tonight, honey. We're going on the town now, looking for easy money. That song is called Easy Money, and it is from Bruce Springsteen's 17th studio album, Wrecking Ball. Greg, the boss, will be touring this spring and well into the summer with the legendary E Street Band, minus, of course, 
Clarence Clemens, who died a while back, but he did not record this album with the East Streeters. A few stray appearances, uh, including his wife, Patty Schialfa, but for the most part, he put together the Pete Seeger Sessions Band, the folkies who backed him on that tribute to Seeger, and some odd guest appearances. Rage Against the Machine guitarist Tom Morello, drummer Matt Chamberlain, and Michelle Moore, a singer who actually does the first ever rap, I believe, on a Bruce mm. Springsteen song. He worked with a different producer. He'd been collaborating with Brendan O'Brien on the last couple of E Street records, those in the new century. This time he went with a guy named Ron Aniello. And this started out apparently as a quiet, acoustic, solo Nebraska-style set of songs that were enhanced in the production by drum loops and samples, and then eventually the Seeger musicians coming in to add some other instruments, uh, a lot of guitar, some, some fiddle, some Irish pipes, and some trumpet, where previously we would have had the big man's sax solos. Clemens is on two songs, obviously recorded before his death. Those will be the last ever appearances uh, by him on an E Street record. So what are we getting the 17th time out of the gate from Springsteen. Mostly new, these tunes. Three of them date back a couple of years from recent East Street tours. Let's hear a song. We'll come back and give our opinions. This track is called We Are Alive by Bruce Springsteen from Wrecking Ball on Sound Opinions. There's a cross up yonder on Calvary Hill There's a slip of blood on the silver night There's a graveyard kid down below where at night did come to life Hell above the stars they crackle in fire A dead man's moon throws seven rays Well we put our ears to the cold gravestones This is the song they'd sing We are alive And though our bodies lie alone Dark. Our spirits rise to carry a fire and light the spark to stand shoulder to shoulder and hide. When the railroad workers made their stand Well, I was killed in 1963 One Sunday morning in Birmingham Well, I died last year crossing the southern desert My children left behind in San Pablo Well, they left our bodies here to rot Oh, please let them know we are alive. That is We Are Alive on Sound Opinions from Bruce Springsteen's new album, Wrecking Ball. Jim, what I think Springsteen is trying to do here is create a soundtrack, whether he knows it or not, for the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement that's been spreading all over American cities as well as around the world. 
this whole notion of the 99%. As usual, Springsteen, an incredibly earnest performer, he's trying to craft a vision of what America is in these songs. That's been an underlying theme for a lot of his albums. You mentioned Nebraska. I think he's bringing it around again. The big difference here is, whereas Nebraska, I think, really resonates to this day. It's one of Springsteen's best albums because he kept it so rough. Here, he's glossed it up. I'm losing the sense of urgency and the anger underlying these songs, some of which are very good because of this glossy production. I think from a production standpoint, Aniello really lets him down with these massive choruses that he puts on a lot of these tracks. I mean, there's that, like that, That's an E Street staple, though. Well, but there's like 12 backing singers and a choir on this. This, it, this is beyond E Street. It, it's piled up so high that you kind of lose the sense of any anger here. And you say, hey, it's just a big sing-along in a football stadium, mm. which is essentially where I think this album is going. Springsteen knows he's going out on tour again. He needs to play these songs in big stadiums. So I think the message is lost because of the production. I think two of the best songs he's written are the very first song on the album, We Take Care of Our Own, and the last, We Are Alive, the one we just played, in which he links together some of these moments, you know, this this sense of what America should be, and linking together in the latter song, the civil rights, labor, and immigrant movements, in a way that some of his heroes like Woody Guthrie or, or Pete Seeger might have done. That's the spirit that this album was created in. But the sound is something else. I think it's a failure from that standpoint. I think for the songwriting, it's a burn-it record. From the sound standpoint, it probably isn't even worth listening to. My goodness. Heresy. This is nothing short of heresy from my partner here, the big Springsteen fan. I think you're letting him off easy. This is a bad bar band on St. Paddy's Day playing third-rate Celtic fiddle kind of music. (laughs) You know, the boss even adopts an Irish accent on one song. But that's been happening since The Rising. Worse than the music, though, Greg, are the lyrics. I think Springsteen is not giving us very much depth at all. These are his words. He uses them again and again. The robber barons who tore our country down, who killed our hometown, right? He's talking about Wall Street and big money people and his answers. How do we fight these evil forces that are destroying the America he's incessantly mythologizing? We just hang on and hope for better days. We keep the faith and we love our brothers. We are alive and though our spirits rise, they carry a fire and light the spark. He sings in that song that that you like, right? We take care of our own wherever this flag is flown. The problem is... This stuff isn't true, Greg. I mean, let's go down to the no, south he's not side of Chicago. That, though, on that song, he's, 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 saying, he's yeah, basically his saying, irony. Yes, it is. It's very ironic. He's basically saying we're not taking care of our own. We've let them down. As Ronald Reagan's appropriation of "Born in the USA" infamously proved in the '80s, the boss don't do irony well, Greg. I think these lyrics are so superficial. Just keep the faith; it'll all be all right. For a lot of people in America, that is not true right now. And I, I don't want that kind of preaching in my rock and roll. I don't think the boss does it well. This is a trash it record. We're the first to say, however, that everybody's a critic and we want to hear from you. What do you think of the latest from the boss? Share your thoughts on that, Fred Armisen, or anything under the rock and roll sun by calling 888-859-1800. Next up, we have another review of a new album from former Screaming Trees singer Mark Lanigan. And I add a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Me home. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We're playing a track from the new Mark Lanigan record, Blues Funeral. It's called The Gravedigger Song. Mark Lanigan, a great vocalist with the Screaming Trees, a band that formed in the mid-'80s out of the Pacific Northwest, part of that whole Seattle grunge commercial explosion of the early-'90s, had their own sound, very distinctive, I think, a psychedelic rock take. They were not quite fitting in with the Sound Gardens or Nirvana In the last decade, Lanigan has gone on to a very successful solo career. He's been making solo records all along, but he's sort of become the Rihanna of indie rock. I mean, everybody wants this guy's (laughs) voice on their record. We're talking about people like Isabel Campbell. Greg Dooley has worked with him a number of times in the past. P.J. Harvey, he's guested with Queens of the Stone Age. Very much in demand, so much in demand that he really hasn't been able to put out records under his own name since 2004. That was the last Lanigan solo record. Now we have album number seven from Mark Lanigan, Blues Funeral. Here's a track from it. It's called Phantasmagoria Blues from Mark Lanigan. We'll be back to review the record in a minute on Sound Opinions. Film 
That was Phantasmagoria Blues from Blues Funeral, the latest solo album by Mark Lanigan. A lot of blues being mentioned around Mm. here, Greg. But I think the story of this new album from Lanigan is the way he is beginning to incorporate digital production in what previously has been a pretty rootsy kind of sound. The main instrument is that voice, and along with that of Mark Arm of Mudhoney and Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, it was one of the best voices of the 90s. Gruff, rich, whiskey-soaked, okay? And the voice is front and center. I love this record. It's long. It's got essentially one rhythm, and it's downbeat. But this is a really great, rainy Monday morning, somber mood record. I would give it a buy it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Well, Jim, I'd have to say Lanigan has made six better solo records than this one. I think he stretched himself way too thin on this record. I love the blues when he does the blues. There's not really a lot of blues on this record, though. Those electronic rhythms that you mentioned don't really work for me. I think he's way outside of his comfort zone. He's one of those guys, when you hear that voice, he can patch over a lot of weak spots. But my attention is drawn to some of the lyrics on this record, which are really weak. You were criticizing Springsteen for some some of his lyrics. i got to say, Lanigan's lyrics are pretty darn laughable on on, on parts of this record. The moon don't shine on Saturday's Child. He's telling us, okay, Mark, go right ahead with that vibe. I'm not quite sure what he's saying there, but in song after song, there are cliched lyrics that even that great voice can't mask. And then on top of it, those sort of pseudo-disco-y kind of beats that he's playing with really don't suit him very well. Uh, The one track that I'm thinking of, the Ode to Sad Disco track, which sounds like a leftover from a Spandau Ballet album from the early 80s. You're just mad at me because of the boss fight. I just got to say, I like Mark Lanigan a lot, but I just don't think he should be doing this kind of music. As far as I'm concerned, this is a trash record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to rent a motorboat and speed our way to a desert island where we can play a desert island jukebox track. And this week, it is Jim DeRigatis' turn. Greg, you brought us a dose of heavy with your last D.I.J. pick by Helmet. I'm going to stay in the heavy vein, but from a different era. There's that fascinating period between the early 70s and the mid to late 70s, just before punk broke, when there were a lot of bands that connected late 60s music to what would become punk. One was a very influential but little widely known group called Destroy All Monsters from the Detroit area. It is known primarily, I think, for Ron Ashton of the Stooges, having been a member of the guitarist there, and also Michael Davis of the MC5. He was the bass player for that other classic Detroit band. He died just a couple of weeks ago. Ashton died in 2009. The group was led by a woman, an extraordinary woman, an artist, visual performer, model named Niagara just Niagara, as Madonna is just Madonna. It was a really unique group to bring these kind of weird, squeaky, almost Betty Boop kind of vocals on top of that classic 
churning Detroit, very rhythmic, very grungy sound. I think it was a wonderful combination. This band is being rediscovered in recent years. Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth put out a three-CD box set by the group. The track I'm going to play is called Meet the Creeper that comes from an earlier collection of singles and rarities that I've had called November 22, 1963, of course the day Kennedy was shot. This song was written by Michael Davis, bass player of the MC5, went on to destroy all the monsters. You know, he lived what the MC5 preached. The last couple of years of his life, he was working hard on a uh, program to bring music education to kids in public schools. That was inspiring. This is a song with a different kind of mood. It's basically about a stalker. It's called Meet the Creeper by Destroy All Monsters on Sound Opinions. That was The Creeper by Destroy All Monsters, my Desert Island jukebox pick. The Sound Opinion's Desert Island jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from the great Nick Lowe. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. The Sound Opinion's production team is Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Annie Minoff, and our executive producer, Fearless Leader, Tori Southside Malatia, or as I like to think of all of them, in the words of Springsteen from the new record, Saints, Sinners, Losers, Winners, Gamblers, and Midnight Ramblers riding this train to the land of hope and dreams.
house time, what you talking about? Let's do it, let's do it. What's up with this girl? She gonna call her what, man? I don't know, man, but uh, I'm just gonna house her for a little while. Maybe she'll come back, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> What's up, baby? All right, let's kick it. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, this is JB, and I'm calling from New York City. My comment was about the uh, DESA interview, which I really enjoyed. But in all of the discussion about the cross between being just speaking with a DJ and having music behind and are you still a poet, it seemed that the issue of Annie DeFranco just kind of went by the wayside. And I remember that old hotel had quite the smell Where I'll go to use the phone Between the donut shop and the pizza parlor Where I learned to live alone Sweet 16, smiling my way out of any jail Learning the ways of the world, oh my I don't know how you can have that whole discussion, given Dessa's sound, and not put any DeFranco in that discussion. Thank you very much. You've got a lot of long answers to a lot of short questions. Yeah. You've had a lot of last chances. A run of lucky guesses, say your nerves can stand it. You bet it all and then step back. Hi guys, this is Mark from Ypsilanti, Michigan. I enjoyed the episode with Dessa, and he asked a great question about what's the connection between music and poetry. And I think you guys have done a nice job over the years of answering that question, talking about rock lyrics as literature or as crap, and something can be very popular and not have great lyrics, but I don't know if anything can be really, truly great unless it does. My thought was, I haven't heard you guys talk a lot about the great instrumentals, and sometimes I think a band is taking as big a risk and maybe saying just as much by not saying anything. The one that I wanted to mention in particular that has always been it for me was John McLaughlin's Devotion. It might be filed as a jazz record, but it's definitely a psychedelic rock record, and the two in particular is Marbles. It's just unrelenting psychedelic rock and roll. You guys are great. I enjoy the show a lot. I'll uh, see you next time.
Hey guys, this is Jim from Schomburg, and I think the president should cover changes by David Bowie, since he is always talking about changes. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.